Welcome to Because You Need to Know. I'm Edwin K. Morse, President and Founder of Pioneer Knowledge Services. This series is your digital resource of valuable conversations with nonprofit and knowledge management enthusiasts from across industries and from around the globe. Hi, my name is Brian Pollock. I live in the great state of North Carolina at the base of the Appalachian Mountains. I've been here for the last 10 years or so, but I was born and raised in Arizona. What I love most about being out here in North Carolina and on the East Coast in general is that I am near everything. Growing up in Arizona, it was a six hour drive to everywhere. And that six hours was the most boring drive imaginable. It was a straight road anywhere and it took forever. And since I've moved to North Carolina, you're in Boston, you're in Florida, Atlanta, you can be anywhere in no time. And I think that's just absolutely great. It, it doesn't take me six hours of boredom to get there. You can drive a lot faster <laughs> in Arizona and there's no toll booths. Yeah, tell that to anyone who's been on the 60. Uh, six lanes of nonstop traffic, it's a beauty. Uh, highly recommend North Carolina. Anyone looking for a great place to live, if you don't mind insects. <laughs> uh, I work in the technology and innovation space. For the last 25 years, I've been helping companies innovate through the use of technology. That means any way that we can take any kind of process and make it better by applying some piece of tech, some software, some app, that's our goal. Our name, Protivate, is based off the idea of prototyping and innovation. Our specialty and my personal specialty is really taking some kind of concept that you have that you haven't really thought out too much or maybe early stages and rapidly moving that into a prototype, a way that we can envision it, get our hands on it, touch it, feel it, see if the market's going to accept it, see whether or not it's going to help people. It's really a rewarding space because I, I get to see a lot of new ideas. I get to meet a lot of new people. And my favorite part is that, and some people will find this really daunting, is that I get to become an expert in a lot of industries. Right now we're working in clinical trials and I've had to learn so much about clinical trials that I didn't know a few years before. Every new venture is a deep dive into a new industry. I really find that interesting. Another thing that I'm passionate about is autism and autism awareness. I'm autistic myself. I don't keep that a secret from anyone. I wasn't diagnosed till later in life, but by the time I was, it was pretty much obvious to everyone. And I do a lot to try to help that community to educate, to raise awareness, to bring opportunities as well. And that works especially well in, in the programming space where autism and programmers kind of go hand in hand sometimes. Uh, I'm an avid fan of reading, although I don't actually have the time to read anymore. So I stick to audiobooks. Audiobooks are great for me. I go through anywhere between 20 and 30 a year, and they really help me to focus on what I'm doing. Seems kind of counterintuitive. How can listening to something help you stay focused? For me, it helps drown out a lot of the external noise and really takes up a lot of those tracks in my brain so that I can stay focused on something. It's a great way to uh, walk around a store when you don't wanna hear all the external noise and you need to filter things out. And through the use of audiobooks, I learn just even more about the world just from the perspective of other people. As an autistic person, I try to study behavior and human behavior a lot because it doesn't come naturally to me. So I absolutely love the aspect of books where I can see how authors 
implement dialogue for different types of people and how one author is able to voice the personality of so many different people, it just really amazes me. I've recently started listening to a whole new class of audiobook in a genre called Lit RPG, which is not something everyone's heard of. It's a, a gaming type book. And it, it kind of brings me back to my youth of, you know, playing tabletop games and early computer games where you go level by level. And there's this whole class of book, this whole genre. It's just heroes doing heroic things and winning. I kind of love the attitude in these books and the heroic nature of them. But I also listen to a lot of uh, marketing books and things that are not my area of expertise, just so I can be exposed and hear what people have to say. So Brian, tell me what exactly is innovation? Innovation is a term that a lot of people use for a lot of things, but it really boils down to a small cycle. And that cycle is the concept of test, ideate, test, ideate. And ideation is a term not everyone's familiar with, but it really means we need to work in an environment where we can throw out ideas, do something with them, get rid of our ego, get rid of our attachment. This is tricky for a lot of people. I'm, I'm, <laughs> really? Come on. People aren't emotionally charged about everything? <laughs> you know, I, I'm running off, off the question a little bit, but this is kind of an important topic to me. Bring it. The key to ideation, the key to innovation is really to build something where you are not attached to what you're working on so that you can put in all that effort, put in all that hard work, appreciate what you've done, take pride in what you've done, and then immediately kill it. Yep. Go on to the next iteration. And you do that over and over and over with fresh eyes and with an open mind that, hey, I'm not going to get it right the first time, the second time, the third time. It's, it's going to have issues. We need to look at this, make sure we understood our goal and move on. And that, that's what innovation is to me. That's that process leads to great results. So how do you instruct somebody to not get emotionally attached to their baby they just created? Oh, good question. It's a mindset. Not everyone is good at innovation. I think if, uh, you know, you're a surgeon, <laughs> you can't really go through that process because you're, you're going to get to operate once. Yeah. Right. The, the reason why big lawsuits exist. Oh, let's try this. That, that, uh, that gallbladder was was uh, necessary, I guess. No, we we work in a field with technology where we have that ability, and it becomes a mindset. It's like not everyone is good at working from home. It takes experience. It takes time. A certain mindset, and and innovation is the same way. You have to really approach it, knowing that that's your goal. I think that's what a lot of companies don't understand when they set out to innovate. You, you know, if you give your day to day workers an order. Hey, you guys, I know you're used to writing marketing plans and you have this process and I want you to innovate and think outside the box. It's a lot easier said than done. If you don't have that innovation strategy, it's hard to get rid of what you're working on, move on and, and ideate. I hear what you're saying that it's, it's a bit of an overused term. Uh, yeah, we're, all, we're in innovation. We're going to do that. Okay. Comes down to how the hell are you going to execute this to make sense? Uh, to actually perpetuate or push forward the company's mission and or operation. So do you think you have to have a specialist involved to get that ball rolling in the right direction? Or do you think it can be self-generated within an organization? I think that like anything, it helps to have outside eyes. 
I'll give you an example, right? We worked with a company where we were trying to innovate in the clinical trial space. And they had a lot of great ideas and things, but they think really shallow. So what we always do when, when I come in and innovate on something is I ask big questions and set huge goals. So we would start with, what's the problem? Why do you want to innovate? Oh, it's so expensive. Okay, it would be awesome if we could cut 5% of the cost down. But that's not innovation, that's cost reduction. What is it going to take to cut 80% of the cost? How can we do this 80% more efficient? That's innovation. So an outside consultant who kind of pushes you to do your best really works. I think kind of the same way that a, a coach can really help an athlete just by pushing them, by being there. And companies don't really want to do that. So they, they need, I don't know, this sounds weird, but I think that if you pay somebody to tell you what you already know, you listen to it more, that just proves true. <laughs> that happens, you know, when you bring an outside source in and then you always get somebody that says, that's what I've been saying for the last five years, you don't listen to me. You know, somebody in the organization has been that flag carrier for how long and everybody's just like, oh, shut up, go yeah. sit in the corner. You don't know what you're talking about. But you pay somebody, oh, oh, light bulbs just go off magically. You're a tech guy. In my mind, I've already got a biased opinion of tech guys because they're not as creative as my experience has been with some developing folks, because there seemed to be a framework when I would go talk to some tech guys about a thing, building a thing, they would just say, well, what's your requirements? I, I don't know what my requirements are if I don't know what's possible. What Tell me what's possible. Well, give us the requirements and we'll tell you. That's the cart before the horse. That doesn't... So how does a tech guy become creative or how do you pull that creativity out of an, a linear thinking person? I don't know that you can pull it out of everyone. And when I get asked this question, which comes up a lot, I use the analogy of cooks and chefs. There are a lot of people who can cook. And in the industry, you have a lot of people who can take a recipe and make a, you know, a really good meal from it but they're not Gordon Ramsay. Yeah. He's essentially doing the same thing, which is converting ingredients into a plate, but he's doing it at a different level. Mm -hmm. And it comes from his experience, it comes from putting in the effort, it comes from passion, it comes from you know the fact that he's explored the world and got his hands into everything. And I think the same is true in our industry. Yeah, I'm a programmer, I started out programming, but I've been in so many industries, I go out of my way to get my hands into everything. I support a lot of Kickstarters. I, I do whatever I can to constantly grow those ideas. Creativity is a seed. You have to water it. You have to constantly feed it. Books help a lot with that, uh, especially like science fiction. You get science fiction authors are, are fantastic at coming up with ideas. They don't care if they're true or not, but there's some grain of truth in them, right? And they spark future things that you can think about. You know, I treat creativity like a plant that I have to water and constantly nurture and uh, encourage people to do that. I like that very much because that represents my framework also is that the air of, and I'll also throw in the term entrepreneurship because entrepreneurship involves having a vision and creativity essence in and of itself. So I see a lot of cross hatch between the things that we've been talking about, because in order to innovate, you have to create it first, just like in your example of the science fiction writers, I too, all over that because they're just mapping out the future. That's all they're doing. They're just mapping out what we're going to be doing. I'm constantly looking at that as a source of 
keeping this thing moving, keeping the brain engaged in what's possible, what's next, or what should be looking at as far as what's next. So where did all of that start for you? You, you mentioned about being a youth and playing games and all that sort of thing, but what was the first thing that you did as a kid that was like, set you on fire in the realm of creativity? I, you know, I was uh, not a healthy kid. When I was young, I actually didn't know how to read until I was somewhere into late elementary, early middle school. And my parents gave me an option when I was 10. You can have this color computer, Tandy Coco 2, that my brother had, or a waterbed. Those were my two options. I went with the computer. Oh, holy cow. Now, no one knew how to use it. My brother had never used it, really. I didn't know how to use it. So I got these magazines called Rainbow Magazine. I actually still have them all stacked up. In the back of Rainbow Magazine was programming in basic. And every month I would copy that code. And we didn't have a way to save code at that time. It was years, maybe a year later before I got a little cassette recorder. I know I sound super old right now, but. Do you remember the telegraph too? Is that when they. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but that that's, to me, this was how it started. And I would literally just sit and, and copy that basic. And then I would think, you know, that is the, the damnedest thing. There's no one I know who can make a little dot appear right. and, and move it across the screen. It was phenomenal. Yeah. It wasn't much by today's standards, but to me, it was a lot. Man, I don't need a book. I can just do this. This from me, I can make this do something that no book told me what to do. You know, from there, it was just, I literally learned to read from those Tandy Coco 2 manuals and those magazines. And it, it kind of grew from there. And yeah. once that got started, I uh, started doing really well in school and got recruited to a magnet program. Now in Arizona, if you're familiar with it, it's kind of a, a big socioeconomical divide. Someone had a, a great idea, and I'm thankful for this, that they could take the poorest gang-ridden schools they could find, give them a lot of computers, and go out and find white kids. That's really what the program did. They called it a magnet. So I would ride the bus about, uh, I don't know, 90 minutes, the public bus. Wow. I was this little 97-pound high school kid riding a public bus. My first stop was across the street from a go-go dancers, but I had no idea what that was at the time. <laughs> I would ride this bus into this magnet high school where they had more computers than you could imagine. Uh, had some amazing teachers who really fostered yeah. creativity, fostered me as an individual. It really gave me every opportunity to deep dive into every aspect of technology in a way that I don't think many kids had the opportunity to do at that time. It sounds like in that situation you became a display mentor just by your own abilities already so you probably had a, a crew of folks that like hung around you to see how you're doing how are you doing this did you did you feel that did that end up being like that um yeah we did a lot of great stuff during those four years and and we ended up competing in national computer programming competitions and me and one other person were at a level higher than any high school could offer. So we competed at the college level, which is great. At, at one of the competitions I was in, my computer teachers from the school were in the grad program at ASU. So they were in the competition. And of course, I cleaned up that competition as well. Oh, my. You know, it really was those teachers and those opportunities that they set up in that environment that allowed me to have the creativity. You know, anytime I was pushing up against a barrier with technology, they'd find a way to get more, more resources, more opportunities. 
and so on. Some fantastic folks over there. By the time I left high school, I was fairly well known in some circles and actually got recruited to start an internet service provider with, with some college kids uh, right out of high school. And it was, it was fantastic. Never looked back. I want to go back to that pinnacle moment. Absolutely changed your life. What would have happened if you had went with a waterbed? <laughs> uh, you know, I got the waterbed years <laughs> later, but um, I think it's unfortunate, but those who are neurodivergent, who think and act differently, if they don't have an outlet that works, that's compatible with them, they end up really displaced in society because standard type jobs that they just don't work that well, they're not suited for everybody. And I think if I didn't end up in this field, I'm not sure I would have had uh, anywhere near the ability to succeed as I, as I do. You bring up a good point is that there's probably a, a split of where people try to find comfort and or fostering their own self in that realm because it can go positive or negative probably pretty easy. Uh, what would be your advice to someone else in the audience that is in this type of world that they don't know what the best options might be. And, and finding that one thing that triggers everything else, like in your case, led to everything else. So what would be your advice to parents in the, just like in your parents' situation? They didn't know what this key ingredient was for you as a life-changing ingredient. What would you advise people in the similar framework to recommend them as possible solutions to reach that kid? You know, I see a lot of times, this is a difficult thing to say, but a lot of times parents are afraid or maybe even limited financially and they don't want to try things or they, they think because they can do something, they don't want to see their kid fail, right? So to me, a key form of success is failure. I would suggest if you have a child or you are a child in this position and you're young enough, do a little of everything you can. Try woodworking, which is something I love. Try gardening, try cooking. Yeah, these things do cost money. And I think parents need to put some resources into it, but with the understanding and the full acceptance that this is just a trial, this is just for fun. This is not, if we have to take $100 worth of supplies, and throw it away because it lasted a week, then that's what we have to do. You have to be exposed in order to find something that's going to resonate with you. What comes up for me is the reflection from the movie Temple Grandin. Similar framework of events that led to the next, to everything that was possible. But in her case, at least in the movie, her parents were just like, mm -hmm. The mother was just at a loss, didn't know how to connect with this young child in this world of autism. And it wasn't, if I remember right, uh, she wasn't until she went to the farm and then she started to blossom a little bit in that new environment and kind of found her own things. It wasn't like somebody said, here, have a computer or here, have this. But Absolutely. So sometimes the environment creates the opportunities of self-discovery. You know, neurodivergence is a spectrum. And there's not a single answer. I know a lot of parents who get frustrated because there isn't a book that gives them a roadmap, but there can't be. It's, it's a spectrum. There's a lot of different avenues. But I think the one thing that is consistent is opportunity leads to success. 
And if parents can find opportunities, try different environments like you suggest, try different activities, even if they fail, even if they fail horribly, you have to be positive about it because that failure is checking one thing off the list. And the first failure may not mean anything. That still might have sparked something that your kid's going to come back to later. So basically what you've just explained is exactly what you explained initially on what's innovation. <laughs> innovation is exactly how you got to where you are. So life itself is a process of innovation in that we have the opportunity to find the next thing, to connect with the next thing, or to understand or achieve wisdom somehow uh, that adds another step in the ladder of progression. So it's absolutely fabulous to talk about all this, and I think we could probably go for another three or four hours, but lunch is coming and I'm getting a little hungry. Let's talk about this now. What is your definition of knowledge management? I'm certainly not the expert like you, but I think that the containment and ability to pass knowledge is how we manage knowledge. The ability to put knowledge into a manner that is communicable. See, we have to figure out how to take what we know yeah. mm -hmm. and communicate it. That is the heart of knowledge management to me yep. and also the heart of growing a society. I like it very much. The idea that it has a bigger effect, or it's possible to have a bigger effect in your example of the society. If we could actually gear up and have an intentful understanding of what we're all doing here and how it all affects society would be a nice change. <laughs> Absolutely. What is your advice to young organizations trying to figure out what to pick from in the world there is now, not like back in the old days of choices. I mean, now small organizations, companies uh, of any size have nothing but opportunities. They don't have to spend resources to build the one-off software solution for their outfit for the most part. I mean, you can usually find something out there that already exists to cover maybe 70% of what you need right out of the box. So how do you advise organizations to one, future-proof themselves and not get married to a boat anchor and a 10-year contract to stay flexible and adaptable to the next thing in the world of technology? Oh, that's a whole bunch of different questions. So <laughs> I think that companies tend to look at technology based on the recommendation of one or two people in the organization. And I've seen this at very big companies as well. Sometimes those people have great domain knowledge because they've been with the company for 20 years. But I tend to find that 20 years of domain knowledge equates to zero ability to understand what's really going on in the world. And I see this a lot. My advice to companies is find a sounding board. Make sure that you are talking to people who are not too close to you, who are not going to give you the answer that you want but are connected to the tech world and, and really going to give you something useful. For companies that are a little bit bigger, I recommend understanding the hype curve. These are published by various different companies, but a, a hype curve usually charts technologies that are popular and becoming popular. If you get a recommendation from your team for tech that's in the wrong place on the curve, you're not going to find the right number of people to work on it. You're not going to be able to grow it, keep it stable. 
or it's on its way out. You're going to be paying too much for senior people. You, it's already past its prime. It's sliding into the grave as we speak. You don't want to invest in that either. So if you're large enough to be able to get there, understanding tech on the hype curve, getting an outside opinion is really the way to go. What you're saying, just buying one technology solution, isn't that's all you need? I mean, is this a con? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> How do you stay ahead of the curve? So you can't constantly be changing horses during a race. You can't constantly be changing everything all the time. You've got to have some enterprise longevity, right? You've got to have something that's going to be, at least for the majority of your business operations, predictable and manageable. And now you bring up a good point that if you're constantly chasing the next technology, who are all these workers that are going to already have all that skill set? You need to run the new thing. So, Good luck. Basically, you're just saying, hey, good luck. Drink some water. You'll be okay. If somebody is not looking in your organization and you bring up the point of the 20-year domain knowledge, in this world, it doesn't really matter. You're representing the past. That domain knowledge is history, not prediction of the future. That's right. So it's not really adding value to this need. How do you find these hype curves? That's not been something I've looked at. So I, I did a search and I got Gartner Hype Cycle. Yeah, there are various different companies. The Gartner Hype Curve is popular among some of the top companies. Not really um, feasible for mid-sized companies. But, you know, if you're uh, Coke or somebody, you're definitely looking at that. If you're a smaller company, you have more options. You know, if you're a bigger company, you have to build for longevity. So you're building... Even starting an accounting level, right? You, the first time you type a line of code, accounting isn't going to write off that code for five or 10 years maybe, right? But if you're a small company, you have that mindset, this is three-year lifespan. There, that's a whole nother hour of topics we could go into, how you account for all this, right? Because <laughs> 10 years is no longer the lifespan of a project, but it's difficult for a big company. They're not movers. They're fast followers for a reason. That gives a big window for small companies for innovation yeah. and for disruption. There's more accessibility at a small to mid-size now than ever has ever been for solutions and or at a low cost. Now everything software is a service. Hey, 10 bucks a month, you're good for the rest of your life. You know, How much is the software as a service affected everything that you see? Software as a service has a lot of value right now in society because it gives people who don't have the ability to invest a lot of upfront money the ability to play in the same sandbox as everyone else. What it has done is given opportunity to people who don't have much. Adobe, while people hate on that, is a great example. It costs very little per month to get access to some of the best tools. Arguably, there are better tools now. I don't know, Adobe is still kind of the standard for me in cert certain places, but it's accessible. It's also budgetable. So if I'm running a company, I know, yeah, I would have rather just bought my copy of Office for 200 bucks, but then I'm looking at capital. I mean, it's a whole different thing. Now I know I can predict I've got 10 bucks a seat. So I think the model for software as a service has way more advantages than disadvantages is really key to leveling the playing field. So what's the future? Are we all going to be augmented reality? Are we going to have uh, bio inserts of technology into our physical frameworks? What, what's the future? I don't think we're going to see bio inserts anytime soon, although Elon Musk, he's, he gets in the news for a lot of things. But the one thing he doesn't talk about is Neuralink. And Neuralink is doing some really, really amazing stuff. 
Uh, and I think he uses things like Twitter to kind of divert our attention a little bit, yeah. but <laughs> watch out for companies like that. What we are going to see is augmented reality pretty soon. A lot of sci-fi authors have envisioned everything from catastrophic uh, splits in society based on you know being able to view everyone's social score in real time to uh, everything else, you know, all kinds of imaginations. But augmented reality is is a huge benefit to a lot of people. It will add value in a lot of ways. And I think the technology is increasing faster than Moore's law. We're going to see some pretty amazing stuff from that within a few years. My kids use phones every day. I don't think their kids will have a handheld phone. If they're not doing things on their watch, they'll do it with their eyes and their voice. And um, that brings up the term of environmental computing. Uh, is that the right term? where you just walk in, talk to the room. Hey, turn on that light over there. Or you, you're right. I, I totally agree that we're not going to have handheld anything. It's just going to be voice command or psych somehow. Is it called environmental computing? I, I just can't remember the term. I think that's a great term today. <laughs> okay. I am thrilled to meet you today, and thanks for your passion and bringing everything you are to the show. I would love to have you back on again. You're right. We could have probably 10 different segments, 10 different things, and never run out of stuff. So <laughs> I say we do it again. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Because You Need to Know is designed to bring people's experience and their knowledge forward to be shared. I'm Edwin K. Morris, and I thank you for joining in to listen to another conversation brought to you as a public service of Pioneer Knowledge Services, a nonprofit tax-exempt organization with a charitable knowledge management purpose. Find us online at pioneer-ks.org and add your voice to the conversation on Facebook. <laughs>